All right, man. Welcome to Crow 777 Radio. This is episode 178. Wayne McCroy is back to help Jason and I deliver information about the coming revolution, which will be a digital revolution. And the reason this came on our radar is we began to notice that there's all these shows on the PBS channels and actually all over the place making the argument that the coming digital revolution is going to be no different than the industrial revolution or any other so-called revolution of this type that we've had before. So we're going to look at these ideas carefully. Anyhow, welcome, Jason. Good morning, Crow. So how goes it? What do we have for the intro, man? We got a lot of ground to cover here. We do, so we can make it quick. October 20th, we're having an event in New York City. It is called Shoot the Moon NYC. It's a mini conference, and John Brisson, Mark Devlin, Wayne McCroy will all be speaking. Then we will be having a showing of Shoot the Moon, and you and I will be doing a Q&A afterward. That could be found at eventbrite.com. Tickets are $30. Also, Crow Triple Seven Radio on Facebook, which Rose runs, has easy links to all that. And on my Twitter, which is Crow Triple Seven, uh, I think it's Crow Triple Seven. I don't really use it. I just post there. There should be some links to these things because I know uh, Truth Frequency Radio or TFR is regularly posting out information about this. What else? November 15th in Dallas, Texas, I will be at the Flat Earth International 2019 conference, and I will be giving a talk on the social engineering of our world, space, and space travel. Hope to see you there. All right, that should be it for the intro. Let's get Wayne in here. Uh, welcome, Mr. Wayne McCroy. Hi, guys. Good to be back on with you again. What do they say? Welcome back, welcome back, welcome back. But anyhow, Wayne, I think one of the obvious things we can get out of the way, the current argument that the Industrial Revolution will be just, the Digital Revolution will just be another version of that, is immediately anyone can work out that in the Digital Revolution, the first thing that gets lost is all sense of privacy. I mean, what do you think? Oh, absolutely. Uh <laughs> You know, that's beyond the pale. One of the things that's that's going on right now uh, is the erosion of privacy. And it's only going to get worse as this whole uh, fourth industrial revolution, also called the digital revolution, comes about. Well, here's one thing that I've noticed, too, is like a lot of people say, well, I don't care if they take my data, even though they should understand more fully what happens with all that data that gets collected. We've tried to point that out is things like Social Blade. Um, Social Blade goes out and ranks, you know, YouTube channels, websites, all these things. Um, and the properties that I run and own, Social Blade has a couple times been close, but usually it is nowhere even in the ballpark and sometimes has such a spread of value as to be ridiculous as something like from a hundred to a hundred thousand dollars or some nonsense. But here's the problem with that. First of all, whose business is that to publish all that data? And secondarily, when it's not accurate, there are plenty of people out there in the world like Jay Jason and I, when we put out Shoot the Moon, one of the things people did was go to places like Social Blade to get that erroneous information to make judgment calls on whether or not they were going to be interested in this, that, or the other thing. And so that's another aspect of what we're talking about. Um, in this case, the loss of, of your private information on things like Social Blade, there's no recourse really um, to try to correct it. And even if you did want to correct it, this, the same argument remains that how is it their damn business? Yeah, precisely. And that that's the whole thing. When you have uh, like a third party taking things into their own hands uh, with, with this information and, and putting it out there, it takes the power away from you individually. And, and that's that's kind of what this is all about, because this is, you know, an overarching plan for control, central control of all all information all across the board. So if you want to speak up and say something and, you know, have your voice heard, 
this is one way that they could just quietly silence you, like without being obvious on the face of it, that that's what they're doing. I think one of the earliest versions that I can recall having been digital since the internet came to be um, was when first cell phones came online. And shortly after that, wasn't long before um, you could look up anyone's cell number and not only get their street address, but everyone that was in their family on these kinds of ideas. And, I, and there was a period of time when that was really offensive to a lot of people. But at that time, not a lot of people understood that was possible. But now when we fast forward, everybody knows it's possible and everybody's been indoctrinated into this is just the way things are now. But that is a stark departure. And it is one of the big lines in the sand. If you consider that 15 years ago, um, where people lived and who was in there, that was private information, not, not just so freely given out by third parties who took it upon themselves to data mine all your data and publish it. But anyhow, Jason, we've got a quite a list to get through. Why don't you... Why don't you roll us in? The first industrial revolution is the period of development in the later years of the 18th century that transformed predominantly rural agrarian societies in Europe and later America into industrialized urban ones. Goods that had once been painstakingly crafted by hand started to be produced in mass quantities by machines and factories thanks to the introduction of new machine inventions and techniques in textiles, iron-making, and other production industries. The massive changes were fueled by the use of steam power. The first industrial revolution began in the United Kingdom and would quickly spread to the rest of the world by the 1830s and 1840s. Thanks in part to its damp climate, ideal for raising sheep, Britain had a long history of producing textiles like wool, linen, and cotton. Beginning with the textiles industries in the mid-18th century, innovations like the flying shuttle, the spinning jenny, the water frame, and the power loom made weaving cloth and spinning yarn and thread a lot easier and considerably quicker. The British iron industry was next, also adopting significant new innovations. The main one of these new techniques was the smelting of iron ore with what was called coke, a material made by heating coal instead of the charcoal, as was always used before. This new method was cheaper, but also produced higher quality material, which enabled Britain's iron and steel production to expand in response to the demand being created by the Napoleonic Wars, which ran from 1803 until 1815, then later on with the massive growth of the railroad industry. So you can see that there are obvious benefits, like when steel gets stronger, but I'll point a thing out here. Um, we've reached a point where the perfection of goods is no longer as valuable as it once was. Um, people love the handcrafted, the, the skilled craftspeople that make things that are unique because it was made by hand. But here's, here's the thing I found in the research. As these looms started to come into the textile industry, it is claimed um, that the Queen of England at the time outlawed some of these machines to come in because she wanted to preserve the high quality hand weaving that was in that area. Um, these are tough things to go back, but I'll make a, another point from nature because there is no law in lie in nature. When we look at so-called gems, things like sapphires, or let's take the Hope Diamond. There's a good example. The Hope Diamond is blue and we are told what makes it blue is impurities in the diamond, and yet it's probably one of the most valuable 
diamonds in the world. And so I use that example to nature to point out that as we get into the digital age, not only will there be no queen to stop some subset from losing their gig because it's being replaced by technology, but everything will be made in a almost exact replica. Um, like a digital file is a good example. It's an exact replica of the one that was just behind it. And the idea of handmade or unique or high quality is out the window. What would you add, Wayne? Yeah, that's that's the thing here. I mean, you're looking at the total loss of uh, the art of craftsmanship. And, that, and that's something that uh, this industrialization does away with, because when things are machined and done by the machine, it, it's all done exactly the same. And you can see this even in the architecture. I mean, look at the Gothic cathedrals. That's craftsmanship. Look at the buildings today. That's machining. That's that's machine work going on. It, it's It's not the same. So you could see how a lot of the artistic endeavor involved with it is lost in this uh, industrialization of things. So, you know, you're, you're going from something that requires a bit of skill to something where, you know, there's no skill involved. The machine does the work. And that's uh, something that's, that's going to leave people pretty much behind in the pursuit of things because there won't be craftsmen much like there, there used to be. And you can see this across all different kinds of industries and stuff. But it's getting to the point where with the coming revolution, craftsmanship and artistic endeavor is going to go the way of machines. And uh, it's, it's going to take away from the creative process of man. And, and it's shifting that way. You can see the Overton window sliding. Today, we have the sad cheapening of everything. Well, well, there's no doubt. Low quality, just kind of pumped out of China. Most of it is junk and low quality. But um, I'll, I'll bring up again uh, what I mentioned a few episodes ago. I was reading an, a very old Eastern spiritual text, and it was very old. And one of the things they set out to do was to demonstrate how you could understand if you were born in a fortunate part of the world. And one of those things was, is there art? That was the apex concern. If there's a lot of art in the area that you are, then that starts to point to you're in a fortunate part of the world. And then, of course, water and other things become part of the concerns where they're trying to demonstrate, were you born in an unfortunate part of the world or fortunate? But look at what's happened in the United States. Just going to a high school, how much music has been removed? How much artistic endeavor? And when we get back to what Wayne just said about the architecture, it's all day long. And we mentioned that recently, too, going from stone carved facades to sheetrock made in China. But go ahead, Jason. In the early 1700s, Thomas Newcomen designed the prototype for the first modern steam engine. It was called the atmospheric steam engine, and Newcomen's invention was originally applied to power the machines used to pump water out of mine shafts. In the 1760s, Scottish engineer James Watt experimented on improving one of Newcomen's models and added a separate water condenser that made it considerably more efficient. James Watt later collaborated with Matthew Bolton to invent a steam engine that had a rotary motion, a key innovation that would allow steam power to spread across British industries. This invention would increase the efficiency of such industries as flour making and paper making, as well as in cotton mills, ironworks, distilleries, waterworks, and canals. Steam engines needed coal to power them, but steam power also allowed miners to go deeper and extract more of what is generally considered a cheap and plentiful resource, although it did come with some significant danger attached to it. 
There was also an increased demand for coal from the transportation side of things as the years rolled by, as railroads and steamships also needed it to power their steam engines. All right, I've got a couple side notes to add here. Uh, one of them is actually going to be something that just happened to me re- recently that shows technology actually benefiting a human being in a meaningful way. But to start with, the idea of the steam engine, um, in some of the research I did about a year ago, I saw the, the use and the perfection of both sailing ships and the steam engine used as an argument to demonstrate that that was the end of a water era. And this is all based on the sky clock. I think we can all agree there has to be of time in our world. It's just not clear. It seems to be one of the most closely guarded secrets. But in this text I was reading, it was claiming that when they perfected the steam engine, we were coming to the end of a water age. And I won't go further than that, uh, meaning the next one is supposed to be an air age, which they were arguing is what technology would be. But to get back to the point, what you're looking at here, when you're looking at machines getting better and better, and now you can make more wheat and you can make more bread and you can apparently feed more people, Typically, what we see is a corporation or some powerful entity get involved, and they always screw the pooch. But I just this week had a personal experience where technology actually was used to benefit humans in a real way. I had to get a crown on my tooth. And so I go in there, and while the dentist is working, I notice he's using a 3D scanner. And I said, is that a 3D scanner? And he's all, yeah. And I'm all, that's incredible. So you're going to take a 3D scan, and you're going to send it to the lab. And he said, better than that. And he pointed across the room, and there was a little, I'll just call it a CNC. It's like a 3D CNC machine. So he scanned my tooth, got perfect measurements, fed it to the machine. They put a little block of porcelain in. It carved out my tooth perfectly. It looked almost pinkish or purplish. They fit it, and then they stuck it in an oven to about 800 degrees, and it came out perfect for my tooth. And on top of that, I didn't have dental insurance. That same dentist providing that instantaneous service, here's a new tooth, which is technology truly helping a person, um, he charged me half. And I thought, there's still hope in this world, but I just wanted to put at least a little bit of a positive note. What would you add, Wayne? Yeah, you could see where uh, these technologies and these innovations can be used to legitimately help people. And and that's the thing. There is some benefit to, uh, to this, this technology, but it's kind of a slippery slope when you're letting the technology take over. And that's, that's kind of uh, what's going on in the world by and large. Man's kind of losing control of the advances of this technology and just letting it roll. And uh, we need to step back and take a handle of this and, and slow things down a little bit, because that, that's the thing. When the power over this stuff falls out of the hands of the, the common good or the common public, that's when there's the potential for abuse. And that's what I think is probably the biggest worry in these types of advances. Now, yeah, there are some benefits, and it, it's good. We do have to keep in mind that there are uses for this that could be extremely helpful to people. So it's not something we want to like eliminate altogether. Like I'm not of the mindset of being a Luddite or anything like that. Uh, technology can be good and used for good. It's just a matter of there's a point where it crosses the line and we have to just really keep a, a close handle on where that line is at. And that's the thing. The line has been blurred and that's how, where we're at moving forward. Well, one of the key points I noticed on what you just said is one of the things that is lacking in this digital revolution that we're experiencing the beginning of now is oversight. 
if there ever was a thing like oversight. It doesn't exist now. And another thing, playing off what you just said, is the power shift has totally openly gone to corporation now, where corporations are making the decisions that will affect the entirety of civilization in our world. And again, there's no oversight. There's no some supposed government that says, hey, man, human beings deserve free speech or any of these things. And that is another massive change that differentiates the digital revolution from any of the so-called industrial or any other revolution you want to point to. Not only that, it's not just the oversight problem. It's also the the lack of transparency to the public about things. That's a major concern, too. Right. Britain's road networks could be considered rather primitive prior to industrialization efforts, but they soon saw substantial improvements. 2,000 miles of canals were in use across Britain by 1815. In the early 1800s, Richard Trevithick debuted a steam-powered locomotive, and in 1830, similar locomotives started transporting both freight and passengers between the industrial hubs of Manchester and Liverpool. Steam-powered boats and ships were already in wide use by this time as well, also carrying goods and passengers along Britain's rivers and canals, as well as across the Atlantic. So we see what's going to happen in America here. We're using the canals and the railroads idea, but the big thing that's going to happen in America um, not long after this is the whole railroad thing. And because of the railroad thing, we're going to get time zones and other things, which we have covered ad nauseum. But I'll make a simple point before I hand it to Wayne. What if there was a state of mind in all societies where if these big, powerful corporations are going to get rich on the back of society. They have to benefit society. What if part of this was not just grow the corporation, make more money, get more control, but we have to benefit living beings? I mean, what kind of a world would we have then? I'm just saying. I think the world would look a lot different if that was the case going along. But by and large, sadly enough, these corporations are basically just working for the profits of their owners. So, uh, you know, it's very few people benefiting from it. We could say with the railroad, the, the advances in the railroad system, though, this is something that early on benefited people. And this is usually how they start to roll things out like this. They put out these technologies and innovations and say, this is something that's largely beneficial for the common people, which you could use the argument, yeah, railroads were very beneficial. They opened up passages to places that people didn't necessarily have access to before. Like they could travel all the way across the country, whereas it wasn't really possible in a reasonable time frame before. So something like that, it is beneficial to the public. And that's usually how some of these things get their start. It's it's a technology that will benefit the people or has the potential to benefit the, the public at large. And then uh, from there, you could see how over the course of time, these things start to become less and less accessible for the common people as, say, prices increase on things. And uh, like we had discussed off air, things such as Internet hosting and stuff like that, whereas it used to be free, all of a sudden they're switching to now this is going to be a paid service. So if you want to continue, you have to pay. And you can see this all the way across the board with all of these different innovations. Well, I, I would just add on the tail of that as far as the the American railroad systems, lesson not learned. History openly remembers the individuals who own those railroads as robber barons. And not only that, you know, Jason and I have covered this. You can go back and look at the beginning of corporation. One of the versions of the beginning of corporation you will look up probably if that hasn't been scrubbed from the Internet is that it was put in place to protect basically black people. But the first year that a corporation was allowed to exist, the main concern was, no, we're not allowing you to make these fictitious entities unless you can prove it benefits human beings that the 
intent stated was that these minorities needed protection. But the same year corporation went into effect by some of the accounts you can read is that there were more corporations as we recognize them today than people protected by a long shot, even in the first year. But let's take a closer look at one of the things that came out of the rail system in the United States. Uh, it pulled us out of nature. This is the predecessor to why we get nonsensical things like day, daylight savings time, which I could tie to the rail system all day long. But think of a simple time zone. And I've said this a lot of times. There is a time zone in the United States. I forget the distance, something like 800 miles. It's a big amount of space between the eastern border of the time zone and the western. If a human being on the western border of that time zone looks at their wristwatch at noon, he will say, oh, it's noon, which, by the way, it really isn't because Noon is when the sun's at its apex. But to make the point, the guy on the western border at the exact same moment, 800 miles to the east, looks at his wristwatch, and lo and behold, it's noon for him. There is the separation of human beings from nature as a side effect, I would point out. Right. And you can see that this is all a part of the uh, building of the new unnatural system over right. the top of the natural system. And that's that's where this all goes. I mean, you can see uh, the transformation from the natural order to pulling us out of the natural order into a man-made construct. And that's exactly what a time zone is. And this does kind of concur with the development of the railroad system. So once again, it's one of those things where, like you said, we're, we're not learning from our past history. That was the era of the robber barons. And uh, could we say that there's robber barons today? <laughs> I would say there are, but they're they're disguised under the name of corporation at this point. So it's not like you could point your finger and say, oh, this guy's the robber baron because it's under the guise of corporations now. So, uh, I mean, <laughs> it's still going on. We need to learn our lesson. A few names do spring to mind. Yeah, it's a bit like looking at alphabet soup, pun intended. Anyhow, man. <laughs> the Luddites were a secret oath-based organization of textile workers in the 19th century and were a radical faction which destroyed textile machinery as a form of protest. The group was protesting against the use of machinery in a fraudulent and deceitful manner, as it was considered, to get around standard labor practices. Luddites feared that the time spent learning the skills of their craft would now be going to waste, as machines would, and certainly had been, replacing their roles in the industry. The Luddite movement began in Nottingham in England and culminated in a region-wide rebellion that lasted from 1811 to 1816. Mill and factory owners took to shooting protesters and eventually the movement was suppressed with legal and military force. Over time, the term Luddite has come to mean one who is opposed to industrialization, automation, computerization, or new technologies in general. <laughs> I don't even know where to start, but, you know, I'll, I'll make a couple of observations. So back in these supposed times with the history that we have to work from, there were people who actually gave a damn enough about things that mattered, like the crafts and artistic endeavors that they had become masters of being fraudulently and in a deceitful manner put down by uh, the Industrial Revolution. And by the way, I would mention once again, just for anyone who gives a lion pig in this world 1811 go ahead start counting the ways i'll count to three one two three there you counted the ways 1811 is the start date of this but to get to the point here these were human beings that stood up for what they thought was correct having probably spent lifetimes becoming master craftsmen and craftswomen but what is a luddite to us now it's a bit like the word pagan isn't it it's an insult so in the same way the vatican turned a person who lives in nature into a bad word which is what a pagan is someone who understands nature basically or lives in the country a luddite was a person who stood up 
for the deceitful practices of the coming industrial revolution. And now we look back on them and use that name, the Luddites, as an insult, just to put a fine point on it. Right. And just to add to what you're saying, when you think of the term Luddite, one of the big things that comes to mind is uh, Ted Kaczynski, the Unabomber. He is probably what in the modern era is regarded as a Luddite. And this guy was a total nut, according to the, the media and how they portrayed him. So they're they're associating this term Luddite with being this type of uh, sociopath. So that's the connotation that uh, the modern age has put on the term Luddite. And that wasn't necessarily the case early on. These were people that really cared about the natural order and uh, skilled craftsmanship and things of that nature. Things that are worth having are worth working for. And that's that's the whole thing that's lost in the modern age. How hard is it to do a show like this when we got to use fake news to demonstrate a point that was blast out all over the world to demonstrate a thing? But anyhow, I'll step aside and we'll just pretend it is what it is, knowing better. The latter part of the first industrial revolution also saw key advances in communications technologies as people increasingly had the need to communicate efficiently over long distances. In 1837, British inventors William Cook and Charles Wheatstone patented the first commercial telegraphy system, while Samuel Morse and other inventors were working on their own versions in the United States. Cook and Wheatstone's system would be used for railroad signaling, as the speed of the new trains had created a need for more efficient means of communication. Banks and industrial financiers also rose to a power never seen before during this period, as well as a factory system that was dependent on owners and managers. A stock exchange was established in London in the 1770s, with the New York Stock Exchange being founded in the early 1790s. In 1776, Scottish social philosopher Adam Smith, who was regarded as the founder of modern economics, published his highly influential and still-studied book, The Wealth of Nations. In it, Smith promoted an economic system based on the concept of free enterprise, the private ownership of means of production, and a lack of government interference. Boy, did this guy get his way in spades. I wonder if he could have ever dreamed of a corporation like Google or Apple or any of these things. But one thing, you know, when you read these so-called historical accounts from the acceptable timelines in our world, one thing that strikes me is one foot follows the other. You know, no, no railway, no wire system, and then no stock exchanges. We now recognize it. You can start to draw these lines and see where it goes every single time. And again, I'll ask the same simple question. What if there was a simple principle in this world where if you were going to be a private individual and become filthy rich because all the people in the world are going to pay you, shouldn't there be some reciprocity and some concern for actually delivering something of value and respecting the rights of the living beings that are about to make you filthy rich? And I know a lot of people will price scream communists and all these other isms, but I'm sorry, I don't accept it. And that is exactly, from my point of view, what is missing and what we see going on now. There is no over There is no concern that we can detect for the human beings that use the systems that are being marginalized at this point. And there's also no true value being presented. That's that's the thing. I mean, uh, you look at some of the innovations and stuff that are coming out today. What's the value in it? And a lot of these things are just made to uh, make the rich richer. And that's a lot of what goes on, especially when you're looking at software companies and things like that anymore. 
Well, that's a hell of a good point because I'll take that just a little step further. Um, with what's going on now, it has in fact shifted the human mindset on what is valuable. Um, right now, our whole idea of fame is much different than it used to be. Now it's how many follows do you have? How many eyes? How many subs? That clip, that video clip has become so important. And the truth of it is, is that clip is exactly what you said. It's valueless. It is valueless right. beyond eye candy and entertainment. Yet, if we echo back to things we covered before, like Ready Player One, that seems to be the exact intended path where there will come a point in this world, and we can see it in, in the jackass clips, in the clips of people doing atrocious things to try to garner hits and subs, that there's a point aimed for when what it means to be a well-educated human being is to just simply be able to recall anything about entertainment. And I think there's an argument to be made that that's exactly where we're headed. Agreed. I think that is exactly where we're headed. So that that's the whole thing. We're holding up these intangible things with no real value as having value. Right. So like the movie trivia, what, what's the value in knowing that? You know what I mean? There is none. There's no practical purpose for it. It doesn't do you any bit of good in the real world, the natural world. This societal shift is how people first started getting herded into cities, giving up their more independent and closer-to-nature agrarian lives. Although many people in Britain had begun moving to cities from the rural areas before the Industrial Revolution, this process greatly accelerated with industrialization as the rise of large factories turned smaller towns into major cities over the course of a few decades. This rapid urbanization brought significant challenges with it. Cities quickly became overcrowded, and the people would suffer from the significant pollution, as well as inadequate sanitation and even a lack of clean drinking water, something that would be plentiful just a few miles away on the farms. Industrialization increased overall economic output, as well as improved the standard of living for the middle and upper classes, but the poor and working class people continued to struggle, as always. The mechanization of labor created by all the new technological innovations had made working in factories increasingly tedious and quite often dangerous, and many workers were forced to work long hours for pitifully low wages all by design. This would include the use of hideously underpaid child labor. That's ironic that I'm living in a state where the child labor thing, I forget what it is, Sutter's Mill, or I don't remember the name of it, some mill um, is supposedly where they started to first enact laws, we are told, uh, to protect children from what was going on there. But here's part of what spurred this episode. And one of the things I was reviewing where they were trying to convince people that the digital revolution is no different than anything that ever happened and we'll all be fine and this is the normal course of things, they were still putting forth the argument, which I do not accept at all, that before the Industrial Revolution, the average age of a human being was 35 or 40. And not only that, they had the nuggets to tell us all that they were starving, they were freezing, they were all these things. And I would point out, by the time we get things like daguerreotype images, you can find people with white hair up in their 80s, 90s, all day long, if you start looking through daguerreotypes, just to make a fine point. But to get back to the point, right now, one of the things that's most prized in our society by people who care about their health is organic food. Well, all food was organic before the Industrial Revolution. All of it. All the water was pure before this happened. Um, and not only that, people were working, physically working. So there's your exercise part of the equation. 
So I guess I'll ask, do, is there anyone out there listening that accepts the average lifespan of a human being was 35 to 40 years? And that's part of what's being leveraged as the digital revolution comes in. Oh, look at these poor people are all suffering to death and living miserable, piteous lives like basically animals. But lo and behold, the machine comes along and everything gets better. And by the way, now that the digital revolution's here, it'll even be better. Well, I think the opposite of that could be shown. I think people did live longer from previous generations. I could tell you, I knew my great, great aunt. She was born in 1893 and uh, she died when I was in my teens at the, the age of, I believe, 103. And she had an older sister that died at 106. So, uh, I mean, if this doesn't tell you something just on the face of it there compared to uh, the generations coming up from then, I think it could be shown that uh, the generations of the past had actually lived longer than the current generations. And, uh, you know, I could see this from my own personal experience. Like, how often do you hear of somebody anymore who who knows their relative that's uh, two or three generations removed from them? You know, like a lot of us know our, knew our grandparents, but did we know our great-grandparents or on and on? And this was my great-great-aunt. This was my mother's great-aunt. So, I, I mean, that's saying something. That's like five generations. Hey, actually, the yeah, generation that was my grandparents, um, a lot of those people died young because they'd been told to smoke by Hollywood and everyone else. And they were further told that there was nothing wrong with it for quite a while. So there was a number of people in what would have been called the greatest generation um, who got all these diseases from modern living. But I'll, I'll give another observation. Here in Rhode Island, where I am, there's still farms, real farms, um, which is becoming rare in the United States for people who live otherwhere, other, other places. Um, most places in the United States, farming has been on the decline. But here, the farming goes all the way back. Supposedly, people got off the Mayflower, walked to where I'm living, and put up farms. And some of those farming concerns are going. There's a particular guy that I have known my whole life. He's 80 years old now. He's been farming his whole life, never has been to a hospital, never according to his accounts. He's 80. He looks like he's 60. And he um, will tell a tale about his father and his father's father and, and how long they lived uh, farming. And, and it seems pretty reasonable to understand what's going on. They're eating farm food. They're working a physical job every day. I mean, this man is 80. He's built better than I am. And I'm not even kidding. It's because he's out there doing it physical exertion every day. And so the idea that somehow people living in those conditions were dying at 35 to 40, I, I'm just not buying, I guess. Yeah, I don't buy that either for a second. Over the decades, outrage over substandard working and living conditions would fuel the formation of labor unions, as well as the passage of new child labor laws and public health regulations in both Great Britain and the United States. While these things certainly aimed at improving life for working class and poor citizens who had been negatively impacted by industrialization, the fat cat bankers and industrialists solidified their infrastructures in a way never seen before. They would go on to use their significant economic capabilities to do as they pleased and were able to buy off politicians and eventually control government entities from the inside. Names that should come to mind are Astor, Carnegie, Doheny, Ford, Morgan, Rockefeller, Rothschild, and Vanderbilt. But there are plenty more. You know, the crazy thing about this, and I don't want to see a bunch of ridiculous comments that I'm pro this or pro that. I'm laying down information. People make their own decisions, how they want to live or what they value in their lives. Not my job. I'm delivering what I consider to be valid information. I did research at one point that I wanted to see what, what was the United States' like at its supposed height 
when everyone loved America and it was the greatest place to be and all the best cars. It is claimed that at that point in American history, in my lifetime, 30% of all workers were unionized. All right. Now, I'm not giving a pro or, or, or a not pro union speech. What I'm pointing out here is we're currently, I believe, below 5% unionization. It was so easy for the media to come in and break the unions. And the reason I think this is important is because diversity is important. And whether you're pro-union or not, it doesn't make sense to destroy a thing and destroy the diversity. And what's even worse is what Jason pointed out here. The reason you got these unions in the first place is because the robber barons were basically crushing people under their thumb. So they joined together to stand up against each other. People can go back and look at some of the, or I think it was coal, coal unions and other things, some of the earliest unions. The point is that in short order, in less than 10 years, the media was able to dismantle most of the unions in this country. So at the height of this nation's diversity, power and reach and respect, 37% unionized workers, all the rest non-unionized, that diversity existed. And right now, there are precious few unions left. There's a few teachers unions, some of the other typical blue-collar unions, but most of them have shrunk. Most of the fire unions have been negatively affected, and apparently the police are, for some reason, missing most of that. But I'm just saying, man, uh, how easy it was for the argument to be made in the media that somehow unions were a bad thing for the country, and everyone forgets why those unions came to be in the first place. Well, they corrupted them from the inside out. That was really how they dealt with it. Right. And you're absolutely right. I mean, you can look at any of the super big unions and, you know, that's what they did. They used the arguments to say, look how out of hand they are. But the point is, is, well, why wasn't anyone looking at the reason those unions were formed? Those people were out of hand and are still out of hand. You see, it's, a, it's always a one-sided argument. Yeah, I agree. Some of those unions got out of pocket. And they screwed up a lot of things for a lot of people doing dishonest things. But the point is, those unions were there for the worker. That was the idea behind it. And on the other side of it was these people who were apparently abusing the worker. And there was never reciprocity on the other side. And it goes to show the media never took the time to say, hey, robber barons, you shouldn't be robbering and baroning. <laughs> you know? That's because a robber baron owned the media. <laughs> That's the point I'm making here. And it's so short-sighted for people to so easily be convinced to judge this or that or the other thing, um, which is why I went back to look at the historical record to try to determine when things felt much better in this country, what was it like? At that point, it was 37% union, and that was apparently, supposedly, and there are differing accounts, the peak of unionization in the United States. Right, and that's just another example of something that started out with good intentions and then wound up going south when uh, the wrong people got their hands involved with it. Power corrupts, absolute power absolutely corrupts, and that's how we get the Jimmy Hoffa stories and all these other things when things get big in power. And actually, that might have played directly into why the auto industry, the auto workers union was a powerful, powerful union. And I suspect that's played a key role in why Detroit dismantled itself because those unions had become so powerful and they overstepped their bounds. But nonetheless, they were put there to protect the workers. Uh, it's just an unfortunate tale that apparently every time human beings get power, they, uh, they got to put their toes over the line. The second industrial revolution is said to begin around the mid-19th century. The main driver of this era was the railroad. 
Railroad lines connected many cities in Great Britain, but the United States saw the East meeting the frontier west like never before. Railroad lines expanded from 35,000 miles in 1865 to 254,000 miles in 1916, making it possible to travel the entire width of the country. After World War I, however, the railroad would start to be replaced by the ever-increasing demand for the automobile. In 1913. Henry Ford installed the first moving assembly line for the mass production of an entire automobile. This innovation reduced the time it took to build a vehicle from more than 12 hours to 2 hours and 30 minutes. Ford's Model T, which had been introduced in 1908, was a simple internal combustion engine machine, but it was sturdy and relatively inexpensive. However, It was not considered inexpensive enough for Henry Ford, who was determined to build motor cars for the great multitude. In order to lower the cost of his cars, and therefore the price, Ford pioneered this technique in an industrial factory setting, creating an efficiency that was never seen before and is still in daily use today. This maneuver ushered in the concept of an automobile for everyone, and the Rockefellers capitalized off of this by ensuring everyone had to use products made from their numerous oil refineries. You know, I came to be in existence in this world at the tail end of a very special era in the United States, which I mark as most of the 50s. And the tale of Henry Ford creating automobiles is part of what we're talking about here. So here he does, in fact, lower the price of automobiles so that many, many people begin to be mobile. And this creates the suburbs, by the way. Everyone's in cities at this point or out on a farm somewhere, but not as many as there used to be. When this happens, all of a sudden, it's no big deal. to drive 20 or 30 minutes from a suburb into the city to work. But for anyone who wants to get a inkling of what kind of a golden era this was for Americans, go look at the tale of Route 66 and you'll see what was going on. Such a different time from what we see now. But here's an example in the beginning, because I think all day long we can draw lines between the auto industry, the railroad industry, and compare it all day long with the airlines. Everyone knows about the airlines, right? What they're doing now. Does anyone want to get on an airplane anymore? Just to make a fine point. Uh, how is that a customer service thing? If they truly cared about people, it wouldn't be such a nightmare to fly, I would point out. That's all agenda from my point of view. But here we have the initial revolution of the automobile actually geared so that most families could get a car. And that changed everything. And for a decade or two, there literally was a golden era in this world compared to what we see now. And it was also a golden era of automobiles. Look at the quality of the, the cars that were manufactured back in that、right. time frame. 1950s, 1960s, compared to today when it's all just a cookie cutter of the same basic frame. That's the point we've made a lot of times.、Um, you know, it used to be so a Mustang or a Camaro would come out. That was Ford and Chevy going back and forth for market share. And those cars were crafted and they hold their value to this day. Look at how many auto auctions there are around the country that are solely interested in the era of the muscle car or the older, well built, architected American vehicles.、Um, and by the way, I would ask, you know,、um, is my vehicle, my SUV that I'm driving today, will that even be running in 30 years? You know, but the point I would make here is it was such a. Creative, high quality product that was coming, even the colors of vehicles varies from what we see now. Like there would be Challengers or Chargers. There was some purple, I forget whether it's called Charger Purple or Challenger Purple, which was specific. Now go out on the road and look around you. 
and you will see the homogenization. There are very few colors of cars. Mostly, they are muted tones, whites and browns and things like this. Occasionally, you'll see a blue, but nothing like it was back then. And by the way, go look out, go look at the class of SUV so many people drive and see if you can even tell the damn difference between a Nissan and a Hyundai. They're, they're all cookie cutter. And you see, you see, this is the homogenization. It's the exact opposite of the innovation of the era that Wayne just referenced, where things were of high quality, so high quality that they're sought after to this day. But the colors alone tell the tale of what's become of us. A significant difference that came in with the second industrial revolution was the beginning of mass production in manufacturing and consumer goods. Common household items such as soap, butter, and clothing that were traditionally made at home began to be made in factories. Goods were also becoming standardized as well, making available the concept of spare parts as opposed to unique items. Since many people were working in a single household a lot more often, they had money to purchase these items. This is not just a concept that is still in use today, but is pretty much a requirement for the vast majority of Western households, as the capability of people to make necessary things for themselves has dwindled to near-obscurity and hobbies for some. I, I, I mean, there's so much we could say about this. The golden age I was just referring to, typically the man held down a job to bring home the bacon for the family, and the mother was responsible for rearing the children in a responsible way and, and holding down the household. And in other words, that was an era when only one person had to work. There was retirement on the horizon. All these things that address the concerns of a living human being, these things are all gone now. What would you add, Wayne? I would also like to add to that that this also corresponds to the uh, disappearance of craftsmanship, individual craftsmanship and things. When people aren't making some of these items for themselves anymore, and they're all just mass-produced cookie-cutter things that that are put out by a machine, then you, you lose a little bit of the craftsmanship and individuality of it all. Well, you know, another thing we could say about the digital revolution is we see this gender confusion thing that's going on in movies and on TV and everywhere just trying to make uh, incidental things that happen in a very small part of the population normalized through the entirety of population. It's basically birth control at the base of it, I suspect. But to get back to the point, this was a time when there was a clean division, uh, a natural clean division. And over time, women were convinced they needed to be more like men, even culminating in the 80s where women's fashion had shoulder pads, of all things. And women finally get into the workplace. And now, I mean, how many households out there where everyone doesn't need a job so that you can get by? And who the hell knows what retirement is? Um, now most people are on 401ks. There was actually retirement back in these times. If you worked for a firm, there was actually in place a pretty much guarantee guaranteed retirement, as guaranteed as it could be. And when we went to 401k, that could be a whole show. 401ks were never intended to be any kind of a retirement mechanism. They were mutual funds, but that's another tale. The second industrial revolution led to many people to propose societal issues regarding such things as the loss of freedom, autonomy, and independence that was being replaced by boredom, repetition, and toil, coupled with filthy and oftentimes dangerous working conditions. Early 20th century films like Fritz Lang's sci-fi dystopia Metropolis or Charlie Chaplin's assembly line comedy Modern Times captured this fear of the factory worker becoming a human robot. 
Well, I think we could demonstrate that this did happen in a lot of areas, but at this point, most of the manufacturing has been pulled out of the United States, so that's happening more in China. But I would point out that the digital revolution is going to do a version of this too. And actually, they're already putting documentaries together, looking at the mental health of people who, you know, the robots and the AI are doing everything. And they're basically just standing there putting a box on a robot or something like that. So this is not a thing of the past. This will be a part of the digital revolution, almost certainly. And this will also lead to the further degradation of the human mind, in my opinion. Right. You know, it's it's like older people. What do they do to try to keep their minds going? They do puzzles and things to keep their mind active. You're exactly right. If you stand in a corner and move a box from this shelf to that robot all day long, what does that do to a human mind over 10 or 20 years? The second industrial revolution is said to have ended just before or possibly as a result of societal restructuring from World War One. It has been followed by the third industrial revolution in which digital communications technology and the internet has changed how information is transmitted, how business is done, and how humans interact with each other. Man, you can't put enough exclamation points under this short paragraph, under this short bullet point. And I'll tell you what, I was around in the mid-90s. I was around when the first internet came. I got my digital job. I got my digital degree to go out and do all this because I thought it was a good idea at the time. Having no idea, just thinking, oh, technology is cool, not understanding what was to come. How could I? How could anyone? But as it got going, it seemed like, wow, man, look at all this information we have access to. I can log on and look into the Louvre here in California where I was, or I can talk to someone I haven't seen across the country for free without a long-distance phone bill, all these things going on. But at the end of the day, what I know now is that the information age is actually the controlled information age, isn't it, Wayne? Absolutely, it is, because that's what it's all about when it comes down to it. Although it's been introduced to us as being this good, useful tool for all, all the entire public of mankind, its sole purpose behind it is to gather all your information and collect all your data. And see, that that's the thing. It's, it's kind of like a Trojan horse to go back again to the, the Romanization of things and back to the ancient Greek myth. This is what it is that's going on. They, they use these concepts like, like this, the whole advent of the internet. Yes, it's a wonderful, great tool. You have all this information at your fingertips. But what is it being used for in secret? And that's the collection of all the information they could possibly get about you. Well, another thing that I've noticed about the controlled information age is the normalization of things that should not be normal. Um, that goes on all the time. As a matter of fact, on our other live show that Jason and I do on Sunday nights, Jason brought a clip uh, showing that the military is now involved in combating fake news for national security. You know, if words like that were said 20 years ago, people's heads would have exploded. Since when does the military do anything within the bounds of this country? Since when is the military a tool to be used for free speech? And by the way, on the face of it, how the hell does the military's AI algorithms know what true news is versus fake news? It's all a bit much, but what happens is these stories and these ideas get put forward so many times that they just become accepted. You know, it's like the first time you see a thing, it's shocking. But after you've seen it a thousand times, it's just the way things are. And that's a big part of what's going on right now in the information age. Right. The Internet has made it infinitely more easy for them to do social engineering on this scale. So. No doubt. No doubt. Not to mention the old barn wall idea from Animal Farm, because that is 
I, I don't know how brilliant the author of Animal Farm was. Did he foresee this time, or was he just pointing out that the barn wall has always been used, and what we're seeing is just a, a, vis- a you know a digital representation of the barn wall? Because it's you know that's another thing. What will the world of information be when the last book is gone? When the last library has shut its doors, when any word digitally delivered to you can be changed with the push of a key, when you could pick up a book that's talking about a horrible man who murdered someone, and at the push of a key, it's changed to not murderer, but interesting man. That's where we're going to be. Things like that can go on. And so the idea of the barn wall, which all of us, most of us read about in high school, and we read the book Animal Farm, had apparently been going on in power circles for some time for that book to have been written. What we're seeing is that idea on steroids with the digital revolution. The third industrial revolution is generally said to have begun in the 1960s with the use of nuclear power generating electricity as well as electronics of all kinds being used as the daily norm. Transistors and microprocessors are some of the main inventions that ushered in the third industrial revolution with these technologies delivering such things as computers, new telecommunications devices, and high-level automation capabilities due to the creation of automatons and robots. All of these things also created their own societal issues, with many losing jobs to machines that could work many times faster at certain kinds of assembly work with no need for medical insurance or even lunch breaks. We seem to be at the end of this time now, with the notion of a fourth industrial revolution being ushered in. And the fourth industrial revolution is being constructed on the back of the previous. It could be said as being a fusion of technologies that is blurring the lines between the physical, digital, and biological spheres. Information is constantly being delivered on a person-to-person basis at near-instantaneous speeds, and supercomputers running high-end artificial intelligence algorithms are doing things at a pace that human beings cannot compete with. That's the facts, Jack. And when all these things combined, they're going to be owned by very few corporations. There will be no oversight, all the things that we've been addressing. But the first part of that bullet point, I'm trying to figure out how I'm going to address in hour one, the nuclear power generating electricity statement you made earlier. So I think I'll simply say anyone interested could go back to episode 72 on Crow 777 on YouTube or Crow 777 radio and get our proofs that nuclear power doesn't exist as it's described. But these things are true. So many of the technologies we see now can do things so much more quickly than a human being, and they do it without mistakes, and they do it without healthcare, and they do it without being injured. So basically, you take an entire factory full of people, replace it with bots, and now there's one guy who fixes the bots. So all those employed people have gone down to that, but that's not the half of it. One of the things that's being openly admitted in the people who are putting out all the information now that want us to accept that the digital revolution is no different than the industrial or any of the revolutions that Jason has mentioned all the way up to the fourth industrial revolution, it's a simple thing. One of the first things we're going to see is all all jobs related to phones. Those are going away. It's quite likely in short order that all jobs to do with driving will be on the hit list. And lastly, when all the manufacturing was pulled out of the United States, it put us on a course where a lot of people were going to be in what's called service jobs. Those service jobs, many of them will be on the chopping block if there is not a absolute necessity to have a human being attached to it. But Wayne, you know a lot about this. 
Yeah, it's definitely something that's coming. And one of the key assets to this, or or facets to it, I should say, is uh, I believe in the trucking industry. This is going to create just such chaos across the whole world when this comes online with the uh, the driverless vehicles and stuff like that. That's a major, major economic component of our society, especially here in America, is the whole trucking industry. So uh, if you're taking that out of the hands of, of people, those jobs out of the hands of people and putting it all to automation, that's going to create a huge ripple effect. Well, I can use that example, Wayne. Back in the 70s, again, when smoking the bandit was a big deal, um, we used to travel across the country once a year. And quite often, you would get in a convoy of trucks to avoid the police traps. But trucking was like a bit of an outlaw, a freedom job. You know, you had hard work ahead of you, but you were your own guy. You could stop if you wanted. You could sleep. You could do all the. That's all gone. There are very few trucking jobs at this point where they're not carrying a handheld device of some time that is clocking where they're at, what they're doing, how long it took them to do the delivery, and ensuring that they're only allowed to stop when and where it's approved. And this is another side effect about what we're talking about and how different the digital revolution is going to be from any of the industrial, so-called industrial revolutions that have come before for the simple reason that it's taking the freedom and the privacy out of a human life. And that is becoming normalized very quickly. All right, guys, I'm going to wrap up our one of episode 178. And I'll mention again, Shoot the Moon has won something like three or four film festival awards. As Jason mentioned, on October 20, we'll have Shoot the Moon NYC. Uh, you know where to go to find those things. And lastly, we put up a shop link on crow777radio.com. That is not about making cash. It's about getting the web address. On every single thing there, the web address is there because of all the censorship and shadow banning. And let me tell you something. It's a stark difference. Five years ago, what my content did online compared to what it is now, it's night and day. And I'm not kidding. And I know there are a lot about a lot of folks out there who are experiencing the same thing. And this is what we're talking about. When you go to police a worldwide massive data upload from everyone in the world, even if you had the best intentions, how could you even start to do that? But what we're seeing now is the overreach is beyond acceptability, to be frank about it. And unfortunately, we'll have to talk about these things in hour two. Anyhow, that's the end of hour one for episode 178. Come join us all in the free speech zone at crow777radio.com. There it is, man. Cheers.